Please take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3. We will be reading uh, verses 12 through 30. We are in a series on uh, favorite Bible stories, and this is one of the stories that was suggested to me. Uh, One of the craziest stories in all of Scripture. And if you don't know what this story is, you'll see what I mean in a moment. Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gareth, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Well, that's a fun one to read at Family Devotions, right? The Bible is a, um, a very earthy book. It talks about things that, that we might be uncomfortable talking about in public, polite company. It, it talks about things that, that we feel very uncomfortable talking about around the dinner table with our children 
Uh, you would think that if the Bible was turned into a, a TV series, it would certainly be rated TVMA. Uh, there's just stuff in here that, that we're not comfortable with. But the Bible is earthy because life is earthy. The Bible is earthy because the Bible describes things that really happened. And things like this really happen in real life. It's certainly the case is we have this story that that is about a, a violent murder by an assassin, a very fat king, and dung coming out of the very fat king. And again, this stuff might make us uncomfortable, unless we are you know, junior high boys in which we think all of this stuff is hilarious. But the Bible is, is describing a real historical event for us. It's describing something that really did happen in human history. All of the gory details are included And they're included for a reason. And we're going to look at that this morning. There are three parts to this passage. First of all, Israel sins against God. Second, Israel cries out to God. And third, God delivers his people. So first of all, Israel sins against God. The book of Judges covers a period of history that is about 350 years long. And so if you picture... The time period between, let's say, the the death of Joshua and the beginning of Samuel's ministry, that is about 350 years, and that's the period that this book covers. And it it was a very dark period in Israel's history. All throughout the book, we see this continual cycle, sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. And then it all starts all over again. Sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. And it's no different here. Verse 1 tells us, notice, or verse 12 tells us that, that once again, Israel does what is evil in God's sight. In fact, verse 12 says it twice. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Now children, what is that talking about? What, what evil had Israel done? Well, if you look back to verse 7 of chapter 3, notice what it says. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Very simply, it's talking about Israel falling into idolatry. The evil that Israel was doing was that they were worshiping false gods, gods who didn't really exist. Baal and Asherah were two popular gods of the Canaanites. And and the fact that that both of these are are spoken of in the plural, again, if you look at verse 7, it says Baals and Asherah, which is actually plural form of Asherah, is telling us that, that all throughout Canaan there were these different manifestations of these gods. And so you had the the Baal of this region and the Baal of that region. You had the Asherah of this region and the Asherah of that region. Many, many gods the Canaanites had. And Israel had fallen away. They had left the one true God, and they were worshiping these false gods. They were no longer devoted to Yahweh. They were now devoted to the Canaanite gods. 
And, and it didn't matter how sincere Israel might have been in worshiping Baal and Asherah. It, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned that they were in worshiping these false gods. God tells us that this kind of worship is evil. It's evil. This is a reminder to us, by the way, of a couple of things. First of all, it's a reminder that any worship, any worship outside worship of the one true God is evil. Throughout history, and and this seems to be increasing today, throughout history, people have said there are many ways, there are many paths. There is truth in in all religions. Even, did you know, even among professing Christians, this kind of thinking is on the increase. Two years ago, in 2022, 56% of professing evangelical Christians agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. 56%. I had a pastor, a pastor one time tell me that he believes that, that Islam and Judaism worship the same God as Christians. What? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those in Judaism, those in Islam, are not worshiping God through Jesus Christ. Any worship other than worship of the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ is false worship. The Bible calls it evil Now, there's a sense in which I I think I'm preaching to the choir on this one. I I think that the vast majority of you, if not all of you, would say amen to this. You understand and, and you agree. You grasp that the Bible says there's only one God and there's only one way to that one God. There are not many paths, there are not many roads, there's not truth in every religion. Truth is found only in Jesus Christ. But, but this second point is, is something that we need to perhaps think more carefully about in relation to worship, and that is that, that worship is not a free-for-all. In other words, God takes our worship very seriously. Very seriously. And that means that we must be very intentional in, in making sure that our worship lines up with the Word of God. And what that means is that we are not free to do anything. We, we are not free to, to introduce into worship things that God doesn't command. A, a scriptural example of this is Leviticus chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu worship God in a way that God had not authorized. And if you know the story, you know that it cost them their lives. God killed them for that kind of worship. Two men whom the Lord greatly used in the reformation of his church were Martin Luther and John Calvin. 
They were certainly not perfect men. They, they had their faults, but they were men who, who brought the church back to the understanding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any of our works. And, and while these two men agreed on many, many things, they, they differed on the subject of worship. Martin Luther believed that, that we are free to do anything in worship as, as long as God has not commanded us not to do it. And, and so using, using Luther's logic, using Luther's rationale, the church is free to have drama because the Bible doesn't say don't have drama. The, the church is free to have um, liturgical dancing. The church is free to have people wandering throughout the aisles as we sing, waving flags, because the Bible doesn't say not to do those things. John Calvin, however, said that we are only free to do in worship what God commands us to do. And so Calvin would say God hasn't commanded drama, and so we're not free to do it. He hasn't commanded dancing in worship, so we're not free to do it. And I agree with Calvin. I think the Bible is pretty clear that we're only free to worship God in the way that he has commanded us. And again, the point is that God takes our worship very seriously. Now when I say that, when I say that we're only free to worship God in the way that he has commanded us, I'm not saying that, for example, we can only use hymnals. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we can only use a, a piano or an organ or, or we can only sing songs that were written before any of us were living. Now, the elders of a church may decide that, that using hymnals is the best, best way to worship God. The elders of a church may decide that using a screen is the best way to worship. The elders of a church may decide that the simplicity of a single instrument is best the elders of a church may decide that it's best to have a blend of instruments. That's not the issue. The issue is this, that the elements of our worship, what we do in worship, are those things that God has commanded us to do. Singing, praying, preaching, sacraments. Or have we introduced things into worship that ought not to be there? It's important, you see, it's important to ask these questions because we, we see from this passage, God takes worship very seriously, very seriously. And so Israel sins against God, and, and verse 12 tells us that the Lord strengthens this guy named Eglon. Eglon's children is the king of Moab. And what this means is that, that Eglon, doesn't mean that Eglon started working out more. It, it means that Eglon now becomes more aggressive. And, and he forms an alliance with some other nations, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they go and they attack and they defeat Israel. And notice what it says at the end of verse 13. It says they took possession of the city of Palms. If you remember from last week, if you were here, the city of Palms is the city of Jericho. And so the point is being made that, that what Israel had gained back in Joshua chapter 6, namely the city of Jericho, they've now lost. And they fall under the control of Eglon and the Moabites for 18 years. And now we see that Israel cries out to God. Verse 15 tells us that the people of Israel cry out to the Lord. Now notice something. Notice it doesn't tell us that they're repentant. 
It doesn't tell us that they're sorry for, for following after false gods and they're sorry for their false worship. It, it seems likely, based on what we know about the rest of the book of Judges, that Israel is just sorry for their circumstances. They're sorry that they're under the control of the Moabites. We admit we do this at times, right? We, we regret our circumstances. We don't so much confess our sin as we want the Lord to get us out of something that we got ourselves into. And, and they know God's power. They know that God can deliver them. And so they, they cry out to him in the hopes that, that he'll get them out of the mess they've gotten themselves into. And what does God do? The Bible tells us he raises up for them a deliverer. This is such a wonderful reminder of God's mercy. God is a merciful God, isn't he? Over and over throughout this book, Israel keeps falling into sin. Israel keeps following after the gods of the other nations, and God shows his mercy. Notice what we're told about this deliverer whom God raises up. Verse 15 tells us his name is Ehud. He's a Benjaminite, and he's a left-handed man. Now there's a, there's a certain irony that, that we don't want to miss here. Um, Ehud is a Benjaminite. Children, what that means is that Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, do you know, uh, do you know what the name Benjamin means? It means son of my right hand. Well, ironically, the judge whom the Lord raises up from the tribe of the son of my right hand is left-handed. Now, in that day, being left-handed was considered to be a birth defect. Now, if you knew that, um, in fact, throughout history, there have been cultures who have forced children who were natural left-handers to learn to write right-handed because, again, it was not considered a good thing to be left-handed. But, but Ehud is a left-handed man. And, and that seems to indicate that he is a, an elite combat soldier. This is no normal guy. In other words, he's been trained in such a way that he is ambidextrous. He can use either hand in battle. And this would have been very useful on the battlefield because most soldiers were right-handed and, and most soldiers would not be used to fighting someone who was left-handed. And so God raises up this, this unexpected, unorthodox deliverer by the name of Ehud. And, and it's through Ehud that, that Israel sends tribute to King Eglon. Children, um, the word tribute refers to paying some kind of a tax to another nation. And so if you, were, if you were under the control of the Moabites, which Israel is here, uh, you would have to pay a tribute. Maybe you'd send that tribute every year. Maybe you'd send that tribute every six months. But you would send this regular tribute. It could be money. It could be um, livestock. Most scholars believe that, that for 18 years when Israel was under King Eglon and the Moabites, they paid their tribute through produce. And so you can picture this, this delegation of Jews that's now being headed up by Ehud. And, and they are coming to King Eglon with all of their produce to pay their tribute. And now we see how God delivers his people. Verse 16, notice, Ehud fashions a sword, 
two edges. It's about 18 inches long. It's more like a dagger. And, and he takes this dagger and he, he ties it onto his right thigh underneath his clothing. In that day, uh, again, most, most soldiers were right-handed. Most people were right-handed. And, and so you would take your dagger and you would put it on your left hip or your left thigh. And, and that's where your enemy would expect to find your weapon. But again, Ehud's not right-handed. Ehud's left-handed, and so he puts his dagger on his right thigh. And they come in with their tribute, and they present it to King Eglon. Verse 17 adds that very interesting piece of information. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now we know what 2 Timothy 3 says. All scripture is profitable for us. We also know, though, that we teach our children not to talk like this. And so what do we do with this? We, we scratch our heads and, and we ask the question, why do we need to know that Eglon was a very fat man? There's a humorous wordplay that is going on here. First of all, the word that is translated tribute is a word that's often used in the Old Testament to refer to an offering that God's people would bring to the tabernacle. Second, the king's name, Eglon, means little calf. And in that day, a little calf was an animal that was often used as a sacrifice. Third, by being told that Eglon was very fat, what's being pictured for us here is that Eglon is like a fattened calf. He's all ready to be sacrificed. And fourth, the word that's translated sword, Ehud's little dagger, is a Hebrew word that literally means flame. Like the flame you would use to light a sacrifice on fire. And so here's the picture. Ehud comes in with the tribute. He comes in with a, an offering. But, but with this dagger or flame, as it could be translated, he's going to treat Eglon like a burnt offering. Now, why would the Bible describe this whole situation this way? I think one good explanation is that we're being shown here that Eglon and by extension, the Moabites, Eglon is as helpless as a sacrificial animal. Eglon thinks he's this great king. Eglon thinks he's this man of great power and influence. Eglon thinks he's got Israel under his thumb. And for 18 years, they have served him. In the day in which we live, there are people who think they have so much power and so much influence who think they can do pretty much whatever they want to do and they're going to get away with it. Think of the nations and the governments who persecute God's people today. Think of those who, who look at the church, who look at Christians, who look at us as, as useless, as less than nothing in society. Little do they know that, that one day they will fall into the hands of the living God. 
That's what's being pictured here for us. Eglon thinks he's so wonderful. Eglon thinks he's got all this power. Eglon thinks he's in control. Little does he know what's about to happen to him. So they deliver the payment. They start heading back home. But at a certain point, they they get to the stone idols that were dedicated to false gods in Gilgal. And and Ehud says, I'm going to go back. And so he goes back to Eglon. And and Eglon's got some of his um, guards around him. And Ehud says, um, Eglon, I have a message for you. Again, Eglon is pictured for us here as an animal who is all fattened up for the slaughter, but he has no idea what's about to happen to him. And, and you think that, that Eglon would be a little brighter than this. You think that Eglon would go, huh, I wonder what this guy wants. I better keep my, I better keep my security detail around me. But no. Eglon sends his guards away, and now it's just the two men, the trained assassin and the fattened calf. And and now Ehud says to Eglon, I have a message from God for you. Now, Now, surely Eglon's heard about Yahweh. Eglon's heard about Egypt. He's heard about Jericho. He's heard about the Red Sea. He's heard about all this stuff. And and now he's curious. What does this God want to say to me? (laughs) Well, it's not what what Eglon was expecting. Ehud grabs his dagger off his right thigh and he plunges it into the king's stomach. And, And then we get verse 22. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Got to be a junior high boy who suggested this story. This is, this is the TMI verse, right? Apparently, Eglon is so huge that Ehud's dagger ends up lost in the guy's belly. Now, Ehud's not a dummy. Ehud's a trained assassin. Ehud's not going to wait around. Ehud's not going to wait around and, and get caught, and, and so he, he takes off, he escapes. Now, we'll get to this in a moment. But in the meantime, Eglon's dead, and Eglon's security detail shows up. And, and when they show up and, and when they realize the doors are locked, notice what they say in verse 24. Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Literally, verse 24 could be translated like this. Surely he is covering his feet in the chamber where something happens. This too is funny. Covering one's feet is a euphemism for sitting on the toilet. And the chamber where something happens, well, you all can figure out what that means. His guards think he's using the bathroom. And there's a good reason for that. If you... If you look back at the end of verse 22, you'll notice that when Ehud stabs Eglon, we're told that the dung came out. And and I think that that when Eglon's servants come to the door, they smell something. And they go, okay, he's taking care of business. But for a long time, the king doesn't come out. It's getting awkward. Verse 25 tells us the servants are kind of embarrassed. How long is this guy going to be in there? 
And so they get the key, they, they open the doors, and, and there's the king dead on the floor. Meanwhile, while they're waiting for the king to finish his business, um, Ehud has escaped. And you go, how did he escape? How did he get out of there? He, he was in the room when the, with the king and, and the guards, and, and the guards left, and, and Ehud kills the king. How did he get out without the guards seeing him? Well, this too is interesting. Um, in that day, um, here's how the king's chamber would have been set up. You would, have, you would have some stairs from the first floor, and they would lead up to the second floor. And, and at the top of those stairs, there would be a door. And, and behind that door uh, was the king's chamber. And, and in that chamber somewhere, there, there would be a hole in the floor so that the king could relieve himself when necessary. And, and that hole would lead down into a room on the first floor that, that was basically like a septic tank. And after the king had finished his business, his, his servants would go through a door on the first floor into that septic room, and, and they would clean up what the, what the king had just done. And, and so here's what Ehud likely did. King's guards leave the room. Ehud stabs and kills the king. He locks the door, and, and he escapes by going down that hole in the ground. He escapes through the septic tank. And, and Ehud now becomes the leader of Israel, and, and he, he leads the people to this decisive victory over the Moabites, and there's peace in the land for 80 years. Now, now again, what do you do with this story? Well, a couple things. First of all, I've, I've mentioned this already. This is a warning, of course, about the danger of false worship. It's a warning to, to any who think you can play fast and loose with worship. It's a warning to any who would think that, well, we all worship God. It doesn't matter your religion. All roads lead the same place ultimately. No. There's only one God. There's only one way to this one God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Any other religion is false. Any other worship is false. And so that's one thing that we could say about this passage. But, but what about all the graphic, gory stuff in this passage? Well, it's a picture, isn't it, of the, of the judgment and the shame that will one day come upon all who have rejected the one true God. The, the final judgment will be far worse than laying dead on the ground having been stabbed by your enemy. We, we need to let the weight of this hit us. We, we heard earlier from Revelation 6, that day's coming. We're reminded here again in Judges 3 that, that one day a final judgment is coming. And it will be a terrible day. It will be a time of God's wrath that will never end. But there's something else that we want to see here, and that is that we don't want to miss how this passage points us to Jesus. If you look back at verse 15, it says, The Lord raised up for them a deliverer. 
Children, that, that word deliverer can also be translated savior. Same word. The Lord raised up for them a savior. And just as Ehud was an unexpected savior, just as Ehud saved Israel in a, in a pretty lowly, unexpected way by escaping through a septic tank, so too with Jesus. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion against God, God promised to send us a deliverer. God promised to send us a savior. And in the fullness of time, we celebrate this in December, he raised up that savior. He brought that savior to this earth. And yet, children, when when our savior came, he, he didn't come as a lot of people expected him to come. He was born to a, a young virgin. He was born in an animal barn. He was placed in a, a feeding trough. He was raised in a, in a town where people basically said, can anything good come out of that place? He was rejected by his family, his Remember, his own family thought he was crazy. He was hated by the religious leaders. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He suffered his entire earthly life. And then he was, he was brought up on, on trumped-up charges. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was nailed to a cross. came in the most unexpected and lowly of ways. Remember what, remember what Paul says in Philippians 2? He says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But through this most unlikely of means, he accomplished our redemption. The great hymn writer William Cooper wrote in the 18th century, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. The most wonderful of all wonders is the wonder of our salvation. God raised up for us a Savior, and he came. And the most humble and lowly and unexpected of ways, he won your redemption. We're thankful this morning that God has opened our eyes to see this truth, that he has brought us to Christ. We know that there are many people in our world who don't know this. We pray for them. We pray that God would use us to bring this good news to them, that there is only one God. There's only one way to this one God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came so that we might be saved and delivered from all of our sins. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning 
for a story that, that while it may seem very odd to us, maybe even somewhat uncomfortable to read, such a wonderful reminder, Lord, of your greatness, such a wonderful reminder to us that in the fullness of time, you raised up for us a deliverer, a savior who came. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us. Lord, give us courage and conviction to stand for the truth of your word, to stand for the gospel, and to proclaim that lovingly and boldly to those you place around us. We ask this in Jesus' name.